Well, yesterday I hit my monthly Facebook hit. Uh, I'm not a social media guy, so about once a month it's like, oh, I've got an account. I probably ought to check it. <clears throat> and there was a post from someone, and the individual said, I'm struggling with anxiety. Does anyone else struggle with that, and can you help me? And I thought, well, who doesn't, right? Um, I saw a bumper sticker once that said, we're all dysfunctional, deal with it. <laughs> and you could almost say that if we're all anxious, but the problem is we don't deal with it very well. Uh, we isolate and hide. We distract ourselves. We get angry and short with others. We grow fearful. We um, abuse various substances or habits or various things. The reality is, is anxiety plagues all of us. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety is the number one mental disorder in America. Uh, as of last year, according to the most re recent polling data, one in five Americans had some form of serious anxiety disorder. Uh, in a lifetime, that will be one in three. And if you talk about not just what is maybe significant enough or honest enough to be counted as a disorder, the reality is all of us struggle with anxiety and not all of us struggle well. And so in light of that person's honest post, I thought it might be helpful to look at God's remedy for anxiety as a helpful reminder, hopefully for all of us, of what is the path that we pursue when we are anxious and um, frightened about a possible future ill outcome, which I think is Miriam Webster's. So it's not that I've got a present disaster in my life that's burdening me, but I'm fearful that there's one right around the corner. And whether or not it materializes, we bear that stress and that fear and that fright of what might happen. Um, when I think of anxiety, I think of my wife's mom, who was the most anxious person that I ever knew. And when I was thinking about anxiety, I picture she came up to visit us once from Houston. And she was a little lady, four foot ten. And we went out, and she didn't like to be alone. And we came home, we were running an errand with the kids, came back. And she was there by the door with a flashlight in one hand and a phone in the other, just waiting for the door to open. Because if something happened, she could call. And if the power went out, she could have a flashlight. And I just remember your mom sitting there with the two provisions that she had, just watching the door for us to walk in. And she was a very anxious person, as was my grandmother. So today we want to look at God's prescription for anxiety. And it's found in Philippians chapter 4. Um, the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. So this is one of his four prison epistles. Uh, that's important to keep in mind because when he's going to be talking to us about anxiety and joy, he's not on a beach in a uh, hammock while he's doing it. So it's not Paul with the pina colada in, what do you call those hammocks that all the college students use? Eno. And Eno. Uh, Paul's in prison um, and he doesn't know if he's going to make it out. I mean, this may be his life. And so he's someone writing in a more dire circumstance than the Philippians. But as you read through the letter, you realize that they also are faced with external persecutions from the Roman leaders. There's also false teachers within. It's led to some division in their midst. And so there's a number of things that they're anxious about, that they're concerned about. They're concerned about Paul. They're concerned about their brother Epaphroditus that sent their financial contribution to Paul. They're concerned about persecution hitting them. They're concerned about false teaching within. They're, I mean, there's a number of things that are very real threats. And so Paul writes them this letter from prison. And when we get to verses 4 through 9, these are his final exhortations, his final imperatives of do and don't do. 
I'm going to, actually, I'm going to have a couple of y'all read, and then we'll go back and unpack. Would someone please read verses 4 to 7, and then would someone get verses 8 and 9? Or were the two? Uh, Eileen, 4 to 7? Who would like to get 8 and 9? I got 8 and 9. Oh, thank you, Lou. <coughs> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving that your request be made known to God. Peace of God, who surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Lou. So as we look at verse 4, the first thing that Paul tells us to do is to rejoice, to be glad, to, to be happy. And it's not something that we can do based on our circumstances. It's to rejoice in the Lord. And the first thing that we notice in this is the reminder that there is a Lord. Um, things don't just happen chaotically. It's not all happenstance and chaos. There is a Lord at the helm. There is someone in charge. And not only is there a Lord, it's the Lord. Um, it's helpful to remember in the midst of the fearful things that the God of the Bible exists. And He is eternal. And He's all-knowing. And He's all-powerful. And He's unchanging. And He's everywhere present. And this is the God who, when He called Abram out of uh, Iraq, was able to keep him safe in all of those times of dire jeopardy and need. This was the one who was able to fulfill His promises, even when it looked ridiculous that a 99-year-old man would be able to have a son. This is the one that at every turn protected Abram, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. And all of those miraculous provisions and protections and deliveries that we read about that God is still there, that their Lord is our Lord, and He is just as faithful and true, and just as powerful and good. And so it helps to get our mind off of ourselves, or off of what we're fearing, and to remember there is a God, He is the God of the Bible, and He is as real today as He was then. And that we are to rejoice in that. That whatever else there is, there is occasion to rejoice in the Lord. So whatever financial, physical, medical, relational problems you're stressed about, there is cause for joy in the Lord. I mean, if we were just to offer some popcorn reminders, I mean, just kind of at random one or two words, as you turn your thoughts to the Lord, what are some reasons to rejoice in Him regardless of our circumstances around us? Blessings. Blessings. Forgiveness. Yeah. Grace and mercy. Yep. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. People that He brings into your life. People. Salvation. The Holy Spirit, the church, the Bible, the hope of an everlasting life with Him, of a new body someday. The reality is we are rich indeed, we are blessed indeed. There's much to rejoice in. But when we get frightened about what may come or what may not come, we lose sight of that. 
And so the helpful thing about being commanded, not requested, to rejoice is that it turns our focus off ourselves, off our fears, off this temporal small planet onto eternal, glorious, enduring truths that are ours. St. Augustine said that the worst that this world can do is send you to God quicker. The worst that this world can do is send you to God quicker. C.S. Lewis said that for the non-Christian, this world is as good as it gets. But for the Christian, this world is as bad as it gets. <laughs> and that's helpful to remind ourselves of, to lift up our eyes to the Lord and remember where our hope comes from, because in the joy of the Lord, says Nehemiah, is our strength. And the text tells us that we are commanded to do this always. Now, Paul's in prison. He doesn't know if he's getting out. He says in chapter 1 that he may very well lose his life in this persecution, and yet he rejoiced. Do you remember when the apostles in Acts 5 were brought into the Sanhedrin, and they were warned not to teach about Jesus, and then they were flogged? And it says, and they left the council rejoicing. <laughs> I love talking to a biblically literate crowd. <laughs> Acts 5 is a random reach and you grabbed it. But they left being flogged, rejoicing because they had been, uh, God had considered them worthy to, be, uh, to experience shame for the sake of the name. Um, it's possible in the midst of hardship to still rejoice, not in the hardship, but in the Lord. Consider it all joy, says James when you encounter various trials. Why? Because we're masochistic? No. But because they produce in us endurance and proven character. And Antonio Orozco is not here tonight. I was going to use, his, use him as an example. But he's wanting to be a Navy SEAL. And why any sane person would go through the rigors of the training and everything else. But he rejoices in it, not because he's a glutton for punishment, but because what it's doing and preparing him for, because he's going to be able to serve at an elite capacity. And when God allows us to experience various trials, He is shaping us and forging us and forming us so that we can be used at an elite capacity. And it's commanded that we rejoice in all times because we make God look bad when we don't. When I am frightful and fearful, and when I allow circumstances to overcome and overwhelm me to the point that I forget who I am and what God has done for me, what I'm communicating is God is not that great, God is not that good, or God is not that wise. Either God's not big enough to put a stop to this, or God's not good enough to want to put a stop to this, or God's not wise enough to know that He never should put me in this mess. But my response to the hard things that God puts in my life speaks about my God. And so it's part of my witness and my testimony. And again, if I just look at myself and my resources, or if I look at the alarming things about me or that could happen, there's a lot to be alarmed about, more than I know. Which is why it tells us to turn our focus initially to the Lord and to rejoice in Him, to praise Him. Because at all times and in all circumstances and facing anything, there is cause to rejoice in the Lord. So get our eyes off ourselves, off what we're dreading, onto the Lord, and remind ourselves we are rich and we are blessed indeed. Step one. Step two, it says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Now, gentle really has the idea of patient forbearance. 
the willingness to accept and endure and what must be endured. So I've fallen in love with a new author named Wendell Berry, and uh, he created this fictional town on the Ohio River in Kentucky called Port William. And he talks about these generations of farmers and the way that they live life and the connectedness of the community that allows them to go through droughts and floods and children's births, I mean, children's deaths, and all these terrible things that happen to a community. And they don't try to frantically escape it. They had no delusions that life was going to be easy. It was just simply, life is hard. There are certain things that there's no escaping, you just endure them. There's certain things you can't avoid, you simply have to allow them to wash over you. There are certain circumstances that hit you and now life is different on the other side because they didn't have any delusions that life was going to be easy. Uh, my mom's dad was a cotton farmer in Floydata, Texas. And that's not an easy job, that's not a good gig. But she remembers one time as a young child, the crop, it was, uh, the, they were about to bring in the crop and an unseasonal hailstorm came and beat down a year's worth of labor. So they sat there on the porch and watched the hail beat down all of this. And they just knew Monday, Daddy's going to have to go to the bank and take out another loan and try to float another year, and hopefully next year will be different. But it didn't destroy them. It didn't devastate them. Because they didn't have any expectations that life was going to be easy. Uh, John Owen, the, the author of Mortification of Sin, had 11 children, one of whom survived into adulthood. But it didn't make him lose his faith in God. He just knew that we're fallen people on a fallen planet exposed to fallen demons. There's going to be a lot of hard things first. And so you endured it. You patiently forbore it because you didn't have illusions that it was to be otherwise. And what helps us in that, says Paul, is to remember the Lord is near. And near can have two connotations depending on the context. One is near in proximity, and the other is near in time. And what several commentators think is going on here is that Paul means both. Because Christ is near us at all times, is He not? Uh, Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. That there are certain times when you may pray for a loved one as they go into the AR and the nurse stops you, you can't go any further. But God goes with them in that room. Or there comes a time that you're going to be deployed or you're off to boot camp and the family has to say farewell and you're not allowed any further. But God is. And there's never a place that we're in, there's no hole so deep, no cave so dark, no prison so fierce that keeps God out. And to remind ourselves, He's with us in that. And there's comfort there, even if He's allowed us to be in a hard place. Because God in the flesh was in a few hard places, was He not? <laughs> but the Father was with Him. And we need to remember that, that we're not alone. There is help close at hand. But also the idea that He's also coming soon. That this won't last forever. That the hardest thing that this life offers won't be forever. And at any moment Jesus can appear and it will be done in a heartbeat and then it will be forgotten. In this story by Wendell Berry called The Drought, the son who's experiencing his first drought, you know, they're, they're carting uh, barrels, leaky barrels of water to try to take care of the cattle. They're trying to find the few live strings that they can somehow keep life going. 
and everything is just dying and brown and dead and fearful. It's like the whole order of the universe shut down. Where's the rain that always comes at this time of year? And the dad puts his arm around him and says, you're too young to believe this now, but there will come a time when you won't think about this. This too will pass. And there'll come a time when you won't think about this anymore. Because when you experience enough life, you just know things pass and move on. C.S. Lewis said that heaven and hell, when we get there, will both be retroactive. And what he means by that is those who reject God and are in hell, that bad decision and that eternity of judgment will taint every joy that they enjoyed instead. But for those of us who get to heaven, every hardship will be cast in a new light and a new perspective, and then the tears will end because there will be no more cause, including the memory of the pain. Heaven will be retroactive. So let your forbearing spirit be known to all men, because the Lord is near. He is close at hand, and He is coming soon. We forget that, but remembering those things can help us patiently endure what must be endured, because not everything can be avoided or escaped. And now we come to the prohibition. Be anxious for nothing. Um, that's sweeping. Because <laughs> my first thought is when, when we're frightened, when we're anxious, when we're fearful, when we're bitter, we typically justify it. Who wouldn't be? What sane person wouldn't? Everybody else is. But the reality is we have a universal prescription to not be anxious. Because since there is a Lord and He is our Lord, whatever we are being permitted to endure, He is sovereignly allowing. And He will sovereignly allow us the grace to go through it. Or He will take us home. But it is by His intent if we are in the Lord. So we can't just simply rationalize and to say, my fear is excused. Um, early in my marriage, when I, we got out of seminary and I was working at Denton Bible, I went through a period where I was anxious about money to a really absurd degree. And I was anxious about having enough money to retire. Uh, I was every day checking my retirement account, checking balances, this and that, and I was fretting all the time about money. And Knox said, all right, I'll go back to work. I'll get a job. I'll work seven days a week. You give me the number that we have to have in the bank for you to quit worrying. And I realized there wasn't a big enough number because I could always imagine a scenario when I would need more. And just thinking through it, I realized, one, I was shifting my hope and confidence from the Lord to somehow this imaginary bank account, and there was no number that would have been big enough that I could imagine a scenario when it would disappear. And her confronting me on that, I didn't have a right to be anxious about that. And God took care of us. And in many miraculous ways, God has taken care of us through the years. In surprising ways where I uh, lost a key, and I forget the incident, and didn't have money for the locksmith, and then found a key or something. But over time, God has met every need, even when we don't, didn't know how that need was going to be met. And the anxiety and the stress was not only foolish and harmful, but it was dishonoring to God. Because what I was really saying is, you're not a good daddy. 
And none of us want to want our children to be fretting all the time saying, I just don't know if dad's going to feed me tonight. Well, what are you stressed about today? Well, I don't know if dad's going to give me a roof tonight. And as a dad, we'd be offended by that. We'd be hurt about that. I'm going to take care of you no matter what. But if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, says the Bible, how much more so God, right? And so we don't have the right to be anxious. It helps explain. It's sometimes explicable, but it's never excusable. The Bible says be anxious for nothing. So how does that not happen? Well, but in everything, get the nothing, everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And so we pray to God. We remind ourselves that there is a Father that we can go to when we pray to Him. And oftentimes He answers those prayers in miraculous ways. Now, do you remember King Hezekiah when God came to him and said, set your affairs in order, you're going home? And Hezekiah wept and cried and God gave him 15 more years. He did. Sometimes that happens. Um, I came back from Kenya in 2005 and I spent two weeks in bed with what was initially diagnosed as malaria, but they ended up not knowing what it was with a high fever, intense muscle spasms. And on the other side of that, um, I began having constant pain in my thighs that never went away. And then I began losing energy. And it was hard for me to walk down my three steps to the office at the church. And I remember one time I was going to walk up and down the cul-de-sac and I couldn't make the loop. And the kids were young and I thought, well, we saw lots of doctors and this, that, and the other. And finally after a biopsy and electrical test, they said you have... Um, I forget the name of it. Basically, we're punting. You're hurting and you're weak and we don't know why. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, this is just the new normal. You know, I'd always wanted to play with the kids and I'm just going to have to learn Monopoly and other things. And then it lifted. And God was merciful and just delivered me from that. But in the moment, at least I thought, I was okay because I knew if this was going to be the new normal, it was His will. And that was comforting. You know, if you're in the military and they send you in harm's way, at least it was an intentional decision for a good reason. And prayer helps even when it's not answered in the way that we would expect or want. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, a gentleman was here, Dave Furman. And did you all know Dave? Wasn't it great to see Dave? Dave's an amazing man. Dave went to go be a missionary in the Middle East, and he has a church of a thousand people in a Muslim country. And he's written books, and they're speaking. I mean, God has used him in miraculous ways. What people don't know about Dave, unless you've read his books, is when he was in seminary, all of one day he felt a pain in his wrist, and then it got worse and worse and worse. And Dave has perpetual pain and weakness in his hands. He's never hold his children because he can't pick them up. He can't hold a metal fork because it's too heavy. He eats with a plastic fork. Um, his wife has to buckle him in because he can't push a seatbelt buckle. He can't turn a key. He can't lift a plate. If you bump his elbow or shake his hand, it puts him in, I mean, on the floor pain for days. And Dave has this chronic disability. And um, his last book is called Kiss the Wave. Have you read it? Yes. <laughs> and it's, the title comes from a quotation by Charles Spurgeon who struggled with terrible gout, with terrible depression. His wife was so chronically ill she couldn't join him on his convalescent trips to the continent. 
but he said, God has taught me to kiss the wave that throws me back on the rock. That his chronic pain, his various struggles, his wife's ailments drove him to God, and that was a good thing. And Dave has tried multiple surgeries, multiple treatments, multiple physical therapies, and nothing has helped him. But Dave doesn't despair. He asks, like Paul, I beseech the Lord three times for the Lord to take the thorn of the flesh away. And did he? No. Why? Lest I think more highly of myself than my aunt. It repeats it three times. Paul was hurting, and he said, God, make me healthy. God says, I would rather have you humble than have you healthy. And Paul said, okay. But the prayer, even when the answer was no, allowed him to be anxious for nothing. Because he knew it was no. So, be anxious for nothing. But, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Um, it's possible to be thankful even in the worst circumstances when we pause to think about that. My wife went to go see a friend yesterday in Dallas named Mary Troll, who's 90? Two. 92. And Mary Troll has had a difficult life. Her husband was a milkman. Does anyone know what that is? <laughs> so for those who are younger than some of y'all, what did a milkman do? Delivered milk. To the store? To your house. The milkman brought the milk to your house, and then you left the milk jars out, and he collected them and refilled them. He was a milkman. Not a great paying job, even when it was a job. And then he had a stroke, and Arch spent his days in a recliner watching infinite loops of Patton. And so Arch drank coffee and watched Patton. And all Mary would say is, oh, I'm so lucky to have my Arch, because lots of my friends are widows. They don't have their husband, and I've got my Archie. And Mary, when she would go out the door, he had this uncanny ability to make her late for everything. <laughs> And right when she's about to walk out the door, she said, Mary, and he'd have some need. So she was always late. And everywhere, <laughs> when Mary would go to a potluck, you always knew what dish was hers, because hers was the cake or the pie with the missing slice, because the best in the first slice went to Arch. He didn't get the burnt cookies and the crumbles. He got the best slice. And what I'll always, and Mary's had a daughter that struggled, Mary struggled. Uh, she had an aneurysm four years ago they thought was going to kill her within a day. And um, Mary's refrain is, oh, God is so good. God is so good. Uh, they had flooding in the house that forced them out. And Mary, we went to go visit her in the hotel a few times, and she goes, can you believe how nice this hotel is? Can you believe this view that we have and the buffet we have? And she just started making friends of things. And if anybody had cause to complain, because she was on oxygen, dragging this everywhere, God is so good. Because she only focused on what there was to be thankful for, not what there was not to be thankful for. Uh, any of you all read the book Pollyanna? My daughter has been shaped and formed by Pollyanna about a missionary girl that received this gift box. And as a missionary kid, they didn't have much. And she, she wanted a dress or she wanted this. And instead, she got crutches. Her gift in the missionary box was crutches. 
and she was disappointed and upset. And her dad said, well, we can be thankful. She said, about what? He said, that you don't need them. And that began, began what she called the glad game. That in every circumstances, even a phone ringing in the midst of a lesson, <laughs> there's something to be glad about because Ed's not going to do it again. <laughs> and she transforms a community as an orphan girl because she always finds something to be thankful for. And there always is. Now, there's always something to grumble about if you choose. Uh, I remember Dad one time, we would have these sales events and have the buffet lunches. And there was one salesman that wasn't the sunniest person in the world. And I remember one time he said, Dad, can you believe it? They're out of ranch. And we got to the table and Dad says, can you believe it? 80 items on the buffet, 20, uh, 20 times of dressing, and I'm paying for it. And he focused on the one item that was missing. And we can do that too, can't we? We can play the unglad game <laughs> and find the one flaw or the one thing that isn't right. But where we fix our minds determines our emotions oftentimes. And there's always occasion to rejoice in the Lord. And there is always something to be thankful for. If we'll do that, it says in verse 7, the peace of God, the peace that comes from God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God is able to grant peace in all circumstances. Um, there's a famous account of John Wesley on his way to America on a boat, and there was a group of German Moravians there, uh, followers of Count von Zinzendorf. And on one occasion, they were up on deck because no one wants to be down below deck on a boat back then. And this terrible storm struck, and they gathered together, and they prayed, and they sung. And then on one occasion, the wave came over. It says that the mast was snapped, and the water came over, and we thought that the ship would tip. And they sat in the circle and sang. And afterwards, he said, weren't you afraid to die? And they said, no. And he said, it was one of the most glorious hours of my life. And it shaped him. And when he failed as a missionary in America and then returned to England, he then went to Germany to learn what it was that they had that he didn't have. And a lot of his personal walk with God and what today we know as evangelicalism roots back to this group that had a peace beyond understanding. It was irrational. It was incomprehensible. But for them, if the waves wash me over and they bring me to God, how is that a bad thing? because they actually believed what they professed. And so there is the possibility, and church history is filled with that, and we know people who have been like that, who have been able to walk into life-threatening situations and still have hope and faith, because not based on an outcome, will I avoid this or get this, but in either event, I'm the Lord's, and that's okay. The next application is in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, 
Let your mind dwell on these things. It's hard to control our emotions, but we can control our emotions through our thoughts. And we do have more control over our thoughts. Now, flash thoughts will pop up unbidden, but we can choose with what we dwell on. Now, Martin Luther says, I may not be able to keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. <laughs> and Luther, who struggled with depression, knew what that was. And we can, in the midst of our fears, say, is that true? Because most times we're anxious over things that aren't real fears. Some are, but a lot of times we're allowing our emotions to go beyond the data. Is this honorable? Is this a noble thing that I'm allowing to fix my thoughts on? Whatever is righteous, whatever is holy, beautiful, excellent, worthy of praise, I can, by God's grace, fix my mind on these beautiful, true things, and that helps my emotions. And that's where we can praise, and we can sing hymns, and we can read Scripture, and we can do Scripture memory, and we can fill our minds with truth, and that helps us. Mill, you've shared it before. Do you mind my talking about your claustrophobia? No, go ahead. <laughs> so, Mill got several cruises uh, paid for by the U.S. Marines in World War II in the South Pacific. <laughs> and when they put Mel in a tin can bobbing up and down the oceans with shells popping up all around, that gave Mel claustrophobia. And all those years that Mel and Patty flew to all those places, every time that the plane door would shut, Mel would panic and say, Patty, I gotta get off, I gotta get off this plane. And Patty would grab his hand and say, Mel, Let's do our scripture memory. And they would go through their verses. And by the time they were done, the plane was up in the air. It was too late to do anything about it. <laughs> but she diverted his fearful emotions with truth. Now, several years later, Mel had this return of claustrophobia, where it was hard to sit in a restaurant booth. It was hard to be in a car. Um, and Mel was about to board a plane with his son to go fishing. And he turned around and said, I, I can't do it. I can't get on the plane. And uh, so we went back home. And then he thought, you know, claustrophobia is just a fancy word for fear. And the Bible's got a lot to say about fear. So he began going through his scripture memory about fear. And then he began making himself ride elevators at the hospital. <laughs> because he wasn't going to allow that fear to conquer him. And so when the emotions came, he filled his mind with truth. And he made himself do the right thing. And he got back on that plane to go visit his sister in Colorado and led her to the Lord before she died. And Mel did what all of us can do. I have an irrational fear that's got hold of my life. And I'm going to combat it with truth. I can't just quench the emotions, but I can fill my mind with truth and I can make myself do the right thing. Because that's the last point that Paul's going to give us. Verse 9. The things you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Do the right thing, even if it's daunting. <laughs> Do what needs to be done, even if it's fearsome. I don't have much control over my emotions. I have more control over my thoughts. I have most control over my will. I can make myself do something. And as I do that, it helps. And as I make myself dwell on this and not this, it helps. And even if I do it fearfully, at least I've done my duty. I've done the right thing.
And that's all that can be asked of us. We live as fallen people in a fallen world, and we are frail. And bad things are going to happen to us in this life, and God never said otherwise. Our goal is not in this world. Our hope is elsewhere. And there is grace and the power to endure what must be endured in this life. And so Paul gives us a sevenfold remedy for when the anxieties come. First, rejoice in the Lord. Turn your attention from yourself, from your fear, onto God and praise Him. Because He's praiseworthy. And there is a Lord in the midst of this. Forbear what must be borne, knowing that Jesus is close at hand and coming soon. He will grant you grace in that place, and He will get us all out of it someday. Thirdly, it's not acceptable to be anxious. I can explain my fears. I can't justify them or rationalize them away because it dishonors my God. The Bible has a lot to say about fear. We can't let it control our life. Pray with thanksgiving. We go to God, tell Him what we don't want to happen, what we do want to happen, and then we leave it in His hands. And we trust that what He decides will be right. We fix our thoughts on what is true and honorable and righteous and pure and excellent and lovely and worthy of praise, as opposed to allowing our minds to dwell in tight little circles about negative, hateful, false things. We stay faithful. We do the right thing even when it's a hard thing to do. And then the seventh thing is we look to the examples of those who have done likewise. We look to the Papa Mel's in our life, to the Mary Trolls in our life, to the Josephs and the Abrams and the Christ in the Bible. And what one person did, another person may do by God's grace. And probably all of us, likely of an older generation, saw supernatural acts of courage and endurance because they just knew it has to be faced and it has to be endured. They didn't expect otherwise. And by God's grace, they went through it faithfully. And they've left us a model that it can be done by us too, by God's grace when the time comes. So those are seven thoughts on anxiety from Philippians 4. We've got about three minutes left. Anything that y'all have personally found helpful that you'd like to share with the group of things that help you in anxious moments? <coughs> Friends. We don't, and Lou, that's even here in the text because he's writing encouraging them. Writing on the back of a moped. Yeah. And so the reality is we shouldn't go through these things alone. And so if we happen to be in anxious moments, we need to open up to others so that they can help us. And if we see someone in fearful moments, we need to come to their aid. These things aren't intended to be endured in isolation. We're a family. We help each other. Prayer. Yep. You know, one thing that I've learned is life is hard. God is faithful. And heaven is real. That's my philosophy. There's no way around it. And, you know, trusting God and He's faithful. And, you know, we know where we're going. Life is hard. God is faithful. And heaven is real. Mm -hmm. Yep. I heard a voice over here. Yeah. Do you mind talking about the video clip that your mom's pastor that you recorded in her hospital room? 
my mom's 99, and about two months ago, we thought for sure she was going to heaven because she had broken her hip, got pneumonia, the whole scenario, but God brought her back, she got over the pneumonia, she's lying in, in her bed, and her pastor from East Texas came to see her, and she's quoting Philippians, I forget which part, we've videoed it, and that's her sustenance. Everybody that was coming into her room, she was asking them if they knew they were going to heaven, if they knew Jesus. Her every word on her lips was about the Lord. And quoting scripture, she's a great example to us. That she is. I want people to remember the not so known scriptures after the known, like John three sixteen. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Nobody knows John three seventeen. Yeah. God did not send Jesus to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Twelve is you will come to me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. And thirteen is you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. People need to memorize the ones that are not so well known. Oh. Because they're all No, you're right. Lou, that's a great word. <laughs> and on that resounding combination of Old Testament and New Testament Scripture, let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that we are weak and frail. And we are fearful because we are easily hurt. And uh, we're not that strong. And microscopic viruses can lay us low and we don't know what awaits us when we walk out of this room and it'd be easy just to hide in bed with the covers over our head fearful and anxious and yet that's not an option we can take because we have work to do you've called us to be faithful in our families in our work in our neighborhoods in this church and Lord by your grace we seek to do, do that faithfully so we confess to you that we are often fearful and anxious. And we thank you that you have given us this text that gives us a sevenfold path to walk down, a prescription, a remedy, steps to take, to go back, open the text, and say, okay, I'm being fearful right now. I'm going to start rejoicing, and then I'm going to start praying, and then I'm going to, and just step by step, help walk us out of that. Help us to grow in our boldness and confidence in you, and let that be a witness and a testimony to others that they would come and give their lives to the good God also. And Lord, for those that are enduring very hard things right now and facing very fearful things right now, would you grant them a special grace, make your reality and presence known, protect them, in your mercy deliver them, strengthen and sustain them. And Lord Jesus, would you come back soon? And we'll ask these things in his name. Amen.